I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promise whose are the fathers, and from whom is Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. 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 Thank you. Well, good morning, Reliance. It's good to see you this morning. Um, before I turn in prayer, I, I need to mention a few things. You've heard some of these things already, um, but uh, I need to make a clarification. If you've been around Reliance Fellowship for any period of time, uh, we've come to know that some sayings that I might say or moments as Jacob-isms. I don't know what we call them. Um, but uh, two weeks ago, I reminded you that uh, we were becoming a little bit more, we're just reminding you of our strict policy that when you check in a kid, you get a, a little tag, and that only those with the tag have the right to go pick up their children. And I made the statement, we, and we all heard about the kid that got stolen. That didn't happen here. Um, I, uh, no, that happened out east. It was just a reminder. Uh, Adam was sitting in his seat. He was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and he wanted to stop me. And I said, why didn't you stop me? Um, thank you for not running out and grabbing your kids. Um, and that you allowed that. Uh, I hope to be understood that that not meant here. But we do care about our kids. We ask the parents that if you don't have the tag, to make sure that you get the tag and support uh, our teams as we care for all of our children. Um, we want to keep them safe. So just a reminder of that reality. I know that checking your kids, it's been over the last several weeks, it's, you know, it's slow. We're going to get another computer so that check-in will go faster and there's no lines and no problems there for your parents so you can get in here and not have to worry about that. And we hope that could ease up the line there. One other thing, seating. We have more chairs on order. Uh, they're not going to be here until September. Uh, when, when we start the service and we're all standing for worship, we have some hosts that will be helping people sit. But, but it's hard to find the seat when everybody's standing in worship. So with that in mind, I ask that you would be mindful uh, pre-service if you're finding a spot to uh, be mindful of those around you and to invite people who are deer in headlights looking for a spot. Because um, I... In the month of June, I, I don't preach, and I remember coming in, and I was thinking, where do I sit? And we sat in the front right here, because we always know the front row is going to be fine. Um, but yeah, be mindful of those around and invite those to sit with you. Building fund. Man, I feel like I'm going through a list of things here. But I do want to bring you up to date. This is a kind of an exciting announcement. We asked uh, about a month, month and a half ago, for you to consider partnering and helping us finish uh, the bathrooms, and we asked for a goal of 40,000. Well, we have 42. And so I just want to say thank you. We had an outside giver 
uh, see the, the need as well, and he contributed to that as well. Those here in the church, uh, overwhelmed by the generosity of you, um, it is fun to, to live life with you. Uh, and I know, like, bathrooms are not, like, at the high point of everybody's list, um, but we know that, that they will be a blessing nonetheless. One final thing. Uh, baptisms. We have committed ourselves, one, to commit ourselves in being devoted to one another. That, that's why we sing some of the songs we sing. We want to remind ourselves, because of Christ, we've been unified in fellowship together to declare the greatness of what Christ has done in all of us. And so we don't neglect the fellowship of the, of the believers, we, we worship together, we gather together, we consider and sing worship together, but we don't neglect the table, the Lord's Supper, and the ordinance of baptism. Members of Reliance Fellowship, we do not neglect this either. And so, if you're a member, I can say this, because you have communicated your commitment to us and to this family, you need to be there tonight. We celebrate what God has done in people's lives while remembering ourselves what God has done for us. And so I remind you of these things to participate with us this, this evening, not out of duty, but out of joy of what God has done in our midst. And so seven people, guys, that's crazy. And it's not just, I mean, it's the spectrum. We have children that are being baptized and we have established they're being baptized. And it's praise God that we get to celebrate that together as a community. All right, let's get into this. Romans chapter 9. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the treasures that you do reveal in Scripture. There are profound mysteries that we can delight in. Gifts given to the church, to your beloved, so that we can know who you are and know who we are. I pray that as this revelation has been Read this morning, and as we consider and continue to consider the doctrine of predestination, Lord, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be bent to it, to delight in it and enjoy it, and that our perspective of it would cause us to respond like Paul and loving the community in which he was around, not being hesitant to proclaim the truths of God and being faithful to that for a lifetime. I pray that would be characteristic of, this, of these people, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was last week, we opened the doors and we considered in what I would call the intro to the doctrine of predestination. And if you were not there, I just would like for the sake of where we're headed just to summarize this last week, what I said. First, I stressed last week, as tempting it is for me to want to defend it, I'm going to make, and I made the commit to you, to preach it. The Word of God, especially when the people of God gather together, we assume that the Scriptures are true, they must be preached convictionally. I made that commitment to you. And then we ask the simple question, what is predestination? In which I stated, predestination is God's mercy extended to those He called in Christ Jesus so that they may be conformed to the image of His Son. And I summarized this 
view of predestination with three primary principles. And as we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11, you'll see these heightened as we go through the chapters. Predestination 1, it reveals God's sovereign right to call and to harden. So next week, we'll see this explicitly stated by Paul. God reveals the right, or the predestination reveals God's sovereign right to call and to harden. And in that, we see and realize the mercy of God towards the beloved. Two, predestination, as we will see, stresses the impartial nature of God. God is saving the nations. This will be quite prominent as you get into the latter parts of chapter 9 and 10. God loves all people. And that three, you do not get to Romans 12 until you realize that predestination unveils the divine mystery for our unity. What binds us together as a people? And at the center of our unity, the center of why we can get along is because Christ has drawn us to himself. And through those things, through those things we've come to realize it. And I also mentioned last week, as we went through this, and I'm not, I'm not going to mention this much more frequently as we go forward, but as we consider the doctrine of predestination, for some of us, this doctrine has caused sharp disagreements with brothers and sisters. I myself have seen the line written down in the sand, and people pick their side, they present their scripture passages, and apparently the one with the most wins. And it's caused as a result for some, I remember when I was at Moody, there was just sometimes that like the way that they would interact with this topic, it was it wasn't helpful, it wasn't edifying, it wasn't unifying. And I even for myself, I found the temptation not to even want to enjoy it. And I've seen it in that in others as well. That the issue around this doctrine often surrounds why we, some hesitate to take it as a result of attitude, sometimes arrogance that comes with it. But I want to admit something right off to the front as we go through this. Doctrine, yes, it edifies, it strengthens, it establishes, it unites, and in fact, it divides. It's like a sword. It cuts a people from a people. That's what doctrine does. And so in one sense, we can come to doctrine and we can enjoy portions for what it gives us. But on the other sense, we have to admit and acknowledge it does cut. Let me give you an example of this. John chapter 6, when Jesus was proclaiming in his ministry the teachings of God. After he had finished, he was saying in John chapter 6, verse 65, he says, And he was saying... For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, as a result of this, so as a result of this teaching, doctrine of God, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 6, 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Interesting. 
On one sense, the teachings of Christ caused like a knife to cause some to be rebelled and to deny Christ and his teaching. On the other hand, the teachings of Christ did what? The opposite. It unified. It drew them together into a whole new people together. In fact, Jesus, as he continues his ministry, as he teaches in John chapter 7, verse 1, there were places that he wouldn't go because his teaching caused a hostile response. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Ironically, what caused others to be united became the fuel to reject and kill him. Pilate himself, when he, Jesus is standing before him, Jesus stands before Pilate as a result of his teaching. Why do I say all this? I think it's healthy, it's help, helpful to remind ourselves that doctrine, while it edifies, it also cuts. And it will separate us from another type of people. Challenge is, is that for many of us, we see the cutting that it does, and we become isolated and not want to participate in it. We are in a society that likes to tolerate one another. Well, within doctrines, it will cut and unify. It will gather us, and for others, it will become the very fuel which will kill, be the means by which they kill Christ. So I, I urge you, learn the doctrines of the faith, because when you get to Romans 12, it's out of these realities you see the application of them. Out of the doctrines, we have our response. I often said, when I was at New Life, you cannot demonstrate that which you cannot articulate. You cannot live out the faith unless you realize what Christ has done in you and for you. There is doctrine that guides us, the teachings of Christ that guides us, and we ought to learn them. And so, in this reality, when we come to this doctrine, it's a long introduction just to get to Romans 9. Paul is confronting something that has become incredibly divisive, severely divisive. In fact, in throughout all of his ministry, even at past his third missionary journey, he hits this issue wherever he goes. In fact, by his own people, the Jewish community, they have perceived him as being unfaithful to the people of Israel. Simply because he has preached the gospel to Gentiles that they can be saved merely by faith. And that gospel presentation has become the very fuel for why Paul is going to write what he writes in Romans 9, 10, and 11. They think he has given up on the Jewish society. And by giving up on the Jewish society, he is actually working contrary to God. They have perceived him as one being dishonoring to Israel's history. And this is why, as you read Romans, uh, Romans, you will see him repeatedly use patriarchs as a part of his example because he wants to show the Jewish Christians he's not dishonoring. He's, in fact, inheriting what the patriarchs once believed, that he uses Abraham as an example. Romans chapter 4, how was he saved? By watching and fulfilling the law? No, no he was saved by faith. If you remember, for if Abraham was justified by works, he was, 
well, has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he draws these examples out because he faces, wherever he goes, this conflict. The Jews think that he has now rejected his identity, rejected the historicity, <laughs> that's a word, history of Israel, and he has come to the point where they view him as a deserter. And as a result of this, they see him as anti-Mosaic law. And so then he has to affirm over and over again. You can see this. For us who often read the letters in the New Testament, we read them without the background in mind. Romans 1, I have said it probably a hundred times from behind the pulpit. There's a reason why in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew? Now why does he say that? And to the Gentile? He's acknowledging the conflict in which he's always faced wherever he goes. Gentiles can be saved by faith and faith alone. And that gospel presentation has caused the conflict wherever he goes. If we don't understand this, then it's going to impact the way I believe you understand the doctrine of predestination. It has to be wedged in your mind, this conflict. So I have said it a number of times. Maybe it's best that we go and look at this reality and I provide you the example so that you understand that there's something going on when Paul presents this issue before the church. And so I just want to look at the conflict. You can see it in Romans 9, 1 and 2. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle appointed by Jesus Christ. Not appointed by the other 12, appointed by the resurrected Son of God. And he has to say, yeah, do you remember back in Matthew chapter 10, to refuse the apostles' teaching is to refuse Christ himself. For the apostles proclaimed the word of Christ. And he has to say, of all people, an apostle affirmed by Christ, I am telling the truth. That's crazy. The apostle has to come to his own defense. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. This is loaded with conflict. You got to see it. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy... I got God working within me, just so that you all know, Jews, I'm not lying. The Gentile can be saved by faith. But what's the issue? The issue is, is that the Jews have think or thought that he has become disloyal to Israel. He's flipped from the Jews to unifying with the Gentiles. He's become anti-Israelite is essentially what they have accused him with. That he has to stress it in verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He does not find it a joyful thing that so many Jews have rejected the gospel, but that has not hindered him from not taking the gospel and turning to the Gentile going to a willing participant who is willing to respond in faith. Reality is, 
if you can't see the conflict in verse 1, then, then I don't know what to say. He has experienced this reality for a lifetime. That I think that it would be best for us if we just give ourselves an example of this reality, of the hostility that Paul faced regularly. Going and turning to Acts chapter 21. This is after three missionary journeys. He finds himself back at Jerusalem. And you're going to see a, a loaded response from this Jewish community. The Jews aren't tolerating Paul. They can't stand him. And it's in that reality I think we ought to understand the doctrine of predestination. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to see, I want you to recognize it because as we go through the chapters 9, 10, 11, I think it is helpful for us to build the conflict up for us and see why Paul is presenting this before us. Acts chapter 21, if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read large sections this morning so that you and I can be, I think, strengthened by the, the background that's occurring here. Acts chapter 21, verse 17 is where I'm starting. He finds himself going to Jerusalem. After we arrived, Acts chapter 21, verse, I'm starting at verse 17, yeah. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And he had greeted them, and he began to relate one, relate one by one the things which God has done among the Gentiles throughout his ministry. Paul, he was known for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God and they said to him, I want you to notice in verse 20 how quickly it flips. They glorify God and as a result of this praise, they said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So now you have Christian Jews. Thousands who are in Jerusalem here, and they are zealous for the law, the problem. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Paul, we're glad you're here. We're glad God is working among the Gentiles, but we got a problem. You're here in the midst of a huge group of Jewish Christians who are deeply committed to the Mosaic law and they see you as hostile towards these traditions. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. This is an apostle. Isn't that crazy? Apostle Jesus Christ they're going to see his appearance as hostile to the Jewish community. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Commentators are saying that this is more of the Nazarite vow, people that are deeply committed to the Nazarite tradition, Jewish tradition. And they want Paul to participate with them for a reason. Let me start again at verse 23. Therefore, do this and they would, that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all will know that there is nothing to do, nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourselves also walk orderly, keeping the law. Let's give the perception, Paul, that you still appreciate the law. 
and the Jewish traditions. Verse 25, But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote and have decided that they should abstain from the meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. So then Paul, he agrees. He took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Paul willing to participate to give the appearance for his brothers in Christ who are Jewish, that he's not against Jewish tradition. He's not against the Israelite community. But here's where the conflict begins. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowds. This is not the first time. But this time they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. Against our people. He's, he is the one who dishonors our society and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen two Gentiles, Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So here's the problem. They just can't stand him. They're assuming that Paul would somehow dishonor the society by bringing a Gentile to the temple. Look at how the city responds. Then all the city was provoked. And the people rushed all together, took Taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Does doctrine cut? Yeah. It divides a people from a people. And the teaching that Christ had given to the apostle that you will be my chosen instrument to the Gentiles has been the the knife that has caused hostility throughout Paul's ministry and throughout that he has to come to his defense as he clarifies God's mystery in that I love my people. In fact, I look at verse 3 of Romans 9. I could wish that I myself were damned, accursed, eternally separated from God. If it meant, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Don't assume that simply because I have gone with the gospel to the Gentiles, that somehow I don't love my brethren. This is the issue behind the doctrine of predestination. There is a huge conflict that Paul has gone through throughout all of his ministry. And if I am right in the tradition that I hold, Romans was written on his third missionary journey. Acts chapter 21 is after that. Even after writing Romans, Paul still faces it. The Jews are hostile towards him. They cannot... Find any unity with what he is doing by simply saying to the Gentiles, you can inherit salvation by faith in Christ alone without observing the Mosaic law. 
Because Christ was the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, the promised one of Abraham, and simply by responding to him in faith, you can be saved. And that alone was hostile. Why? Because Paul was letting Gentiles be Gentiles without becoming Israelite. And the Israelites could see the trajectory of this message, meaning that if this continues, Israelites will no longer be a people. Because Gentiles will go interact in a church together with Israelites, and you know what happens when kids grow up together. The worst thing possible, a Gentile boy might marry a Jewish girl. And this was appalling to them. I have seen it even in my own life. You have as well. Culture is powerful. And in some cultures, when you have two different racial groups find themselves getting married together, while in some traditions we see this is a good thing, the cultures in some parts grieve because a part of their culture is being lost. And this is a part of the reality that Paul is alluding to. And it's hostile, has driven a wedge within the society. Don't think that I don't care about my Jewish brothers. In fact, could you imagine? I don't know if there's another way to stretch his love for his brethren, Israelites, that if it meant eternal separation from Christ so that my brethren could know Christ forever, I would take it. Paul, I'm not there. Maybe, maybe you would for your children. Why? Because there's a deep love there. And Paul has that for his own people. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Simply by going with the gospel of the Gentiles doesn't mean I hate my people. It's loaded in the background. And what I find so interesting when we come to the doctrine of predestination, that attitude is often missing. Because it doesn't drive us to understand that just simply because God has called us to himself, it does not give us the right then to turn to the world and be dismissive. In fact, if our doctrine of predestination leads us to heartlessness or callousness to the world around us, this doctrine is worthless. I see a whole different attitude that Paul has to the world who has rejected the gospel. In fact, he grieves for his own. I'd give it up myself. It meant all of them could have it. I wonder if that's where we're at when it comes to this issue on this doctrine. I'm thankful that he puts it on the front end. It's this driving motivation. Get this attitude planted within your perspective of this issue. What I love about Paul, his un wavering commitment, even knowing that wherever he went, they were hostile. His own people were hostile to him. He's arrested in Jerusalem. Do you know how he responds? Let me remind you. I think this is helpful. He doesn't only, not only does he teach his doctrine, he lives his doctrine. So if you turn back your Bibles, back to Acts chapter 21, he has written Romans already. Now he's living it out in front of us. He could do anything to save his people. The poor Roman cohort, he doesn't know what 
the commander of his Roman, he doesn't know what's going on. Why in the world are the Jews mad at this guy? Acts chapter 21, let's pick up at verse 34. But among the crowds, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts, this is the commander, because of the uproar, he ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks. Let me get this thing figured out. Jump down to verse 37. Acts chapter 1, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? The Roman centurion responds, You're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. And Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus of Sicilia, Sicilia, and a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, this is crazy. His Jewish brothers are trying to kill him. I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had been given him permission, Paul, standing on, on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hands. When there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, they're trying to kill him. So, I mean, relive this with me. I mean, where was Jesus handed over? It was here. Why was he handed over? For his teaching. We're saying that he was the Son of God. This temple that took you so many years to build, in three days I'll destroy it and I'll raise it back up. He was speaking of his body. And these teachings caused the Jewish people to reject their Messiah. In the same place, now Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is proclaiming the teachings of Christ, and he has faced the same trajectory. Seek to kill him. And yet while he's being escorted away, he begs, let me have one more word with them. Brethren, chapter 22, speaking to the Jews who are just about to kill him. Brethren, And fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. You can hear it. Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Yeah, you try to kill me. It is the power of God to anyone and everyone who believes. To the Jew, I will be faithful to this reality. The Jew has the right to respond to the gospel by faith. Just as much as the Gentile. But I want you to notice as I'm trying to stress the conflict, when do they lose their mind? When is it too much for them? And so when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in the Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priests and all the council over the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. I once was like you guys. I participated in gathering people like me and killing them. 
Just like you, I was just as passionate. Verse 6. But then it happened. That I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This language you can hear in Romans earlier. I was helpless. While helpless, Christ demonstrated his love towards us. Paul was heading in a trajectory in which he could not get out of his own, but then God called. Then it happened. And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Persecuting me. And I am Jesus, excuse me, persecuting me. Excuse me. Verse 9. And those who were with me saw the lying to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there will, you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. What's he doing? He's telling his testimony. He's telling the people, of his own brethren, how he came about to be a changed man. But that's not where they lose their minds. They're okay up to this point. Sir, man, Ananias, verse 12, a man who was devoted by the standard of the law, well spoken of all by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing near, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. A fellow Jew who is passionate like you, who was redeemed in Christ, received me as his brother. And at that very time, I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you. Appointed you. Where is Paul getting this doctrine of predestination from? God called. God has the right to call. To open the hearts of men. Has appointed you to know that his will. And to see the righteous one. And to hear an utterance from his, his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men. Of what you have seen and heard. No problems up to this point. Continue to let him speak. So now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized. Wash your sins. Calling on his name. Verse 17. And it happened. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. That I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. Because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said Lord. They themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to be imprisoned and to beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. What happens next? You got to understand, you got to read it, you got to see the conflict. And he said to me, Who's saying this? God. Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd, when they listened to him up to this statement, when they raised, then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The conflict that Paul is addressing in 9, 10, and 11. How in the world can a Gentile be saved by faith? 
that He is going to solidify for the church. It's not on the basis of the Mosaic Law, which He's already stated. You are indeed in Christ by the call of God. Not on the basis of merit, but by the grace of God, the mercy of God. And it's that teaching that divided a people from a people. Throughout his early church history, what fascinated the early church in the pagan world as they watched the church interact, they could not understand why a Jew would interact with a Gentile. That was outside of their categories. And I think that's hard for us to realize in a society that loves to tolerate one another. The Jewish society didn't. It did not tolerate one another. It was Jewish and the rest of the world. And Paul has to break down this dividing wall through this teaching. That he's, I'm not lying. My conscience is clear. I love my people. But I love those whom God loves. That I, when I was sent, I went. That's the conflict. If you miss it, I think you'll miss what we're supposed to learn in 9, 10, and 11. Paul is coming to his defense. Man is saved by the call of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God. That he goes on to say this, the Israelite advantage. Look at everything that God provided them. Verse 4. To whom belongs the adoption of son, the glory and the covenants and giving the law the temple service, the promises. God was so gracious to my people. Whose are the fathers and from whom ultimately arrived Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God bless forever. Amen. The point, the Jews loved everything that they, God had given them except for the last gift, Christ. Everything, the covenants, the glory, the temple, everything was meant to find its great fulfillment in Christ. But when Christ came, his teaching, they could not accept that we rejected it. And on the base of this rejection, it has created the conflict which Paul finds himself in. They have been the people with the greatest advantage, and yet they missed Christ. And Christ who loves the world. And on that basis, he says, I love them. Don't perceive my going to the Gentiles as a disdain for my own people. That's the, that's the conflict. I need you to know that. And so with that being known, I feel like we have to go to our convictional response. Like, is that us? Right? Sometimes you can become so inward focused like the Jewish community who makes things, traditions like the chief thing that you become hostile to the world around you. So the way that you talk, the way that you speak. We don't respond graciously. Why did I read Acts chapter 21 and verse 22? Paul went out of his way to present the gospel to his people, even when they're trying to kill him. Will we do that for our neighbor? I need you to see it in verse 3. I wish that I myself 
were accursed. His point? They're going to hell. They're going to experience the wrath of God for all eternity. That's at the forefront of why he responds the way he does. And if they don't receive the gift of Christ and his salvation by faith, they're damned. And I give up everything so they might enjoy it. Is that us? So easy to make relationships with those whom we work with and never have the conversation which gives them life. And here's the reality as we go through this. I think what the doctrine of predestination, I think what happens is some people are like, well, God is so sovereign, then God's just going to save them without me. Why send even missionaries? It's the straw man argument. That's not how Paul walks. In fact, when you get to Romans 10, he shows you how the Christian walks. If the sovereignty of God is even in salvation, who should we go to? Paul teaches us in Romans 10, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Romans 9, 10, and 11, why did it strike revivals? Why has it? Because we know our human limitation. God's salvation is His. He is the one who saves. And so God's people, what have they done historically? They pray. God save them. I beg you. It's you who opens the hearts and minds of men. You make the proud humble. And let me be faithful to speak when you've opened their hearts to receive the gospel. Let me demonstrate in obedience the the mercy that I've experienced in Christ in a form of worship. But historically, we've seen God work in revivals because not that the church says we do all these things right and we set up the right programs, then the community around us will be thrilled about responding to the gospel. No, it's been through prayer. Save my daughter. Save my son. Save my husband. Save my boss, Lord. Because you know, I'm merely a man. And Paul's going to say this reality. The sovereignty of God is in salvation. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So God, have mercy on my children. And it's through that we pray the sovereign one who has all power to open the hearts of men. I think, as I have been convicted over the years, even now more recently, how there is a famine within the church as it relates to prayer. In our homes and in our own lives. That we don't pray, we actually think we can do it. And the reality is, is this. Paul was faithful to what God had called him to do, but that did not neglect his prayer for them. And knowing that it's God who, in the moment, it can happen by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the compassion of God, that he opens Jews and Gentiles' hearts and minds. And I would pray as we go through these, that that would be enriched in our minds and our hearts as we understand the mercy of God. So the doctrine of predestination heightens in my mind the mercy which has been given to us. 
And in light of knowing that mercy, we proclaim what God has done prayerfully, hoping and calling God. You are patient with all. You've said you're patient with all, not wanting anyone to perish. So don't stop saving. Open their hearts. Last, and I'll close with this. I'm going to find it hard to go through this and stay within my parameters. Don't throw away your advantage like the Israelites. I'm talking to you, youth, college, or established. Like the Israelites had everything. Promises, the temple, religious tradition. They had everything to equip them and prepare them for Christ. And they missed it. It is so easy for those of you who have been raised up in Christian families to have been given such an advantage. Don't use the time that you've been given to miss Christ because God has been gracious to you to give these these things to you. But don't think that just because families don't get the advantage and they are dark places that God can't save there. In fact, that's what he loves to do. He'll take a murderer like Paul and in a moment change him. And with that confidence, the church says, keep going, keep doing it, Lord Jesus. Keep saving those within this city and let us be passionate and anticipating that God, if he waits, that he is still doing these things. Let's pray. Lord, give us a heart like Paul for the people around us. We have said as a church, we want to invite each other into impacting the community around us for Christ. But that comes out of the reality that we know it's you who saves. And if it was on the basis of my example of Christ that somebody might respond, how, how that would be so depressing. But on the basis of Christ's example, you save people. And so, Lord, I pray, whether it be in our voice, whether in our practice, Lord, you keep doing what you've historically been doing, seeking and saving the lost. There are people in this city, Lord, that are accursed, that are going to hell. Lord, let us be mindful just as Paul, to be as faithful just as Paul, to proclaim the gospel no matter what their perspective might be of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.